Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. What is the connection between Adam and Christ, and how should this impact our faith today? Well, during the program, Dr. Neufeld continues to teach on the book of Romans in our current series, The Power of the Gospel. So let's begin our study in the new head of the human race, based on the text in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Throughout history, people have taken responsibility for other people. It's often called leadership. When an ancient king went to war against another king, the actions of one king would determine the life and death of countless people in their kingdom. So in that sense, the decision of one determined the lives, prosperity, and the deaths of many. Now that which is done by kings and dictators and prime ministers and presidents is also done by countless others. Each school child enters into an education in which the curriculum and the things believed and insisted upon, including who it is that will teach and train them in the values that they will adopt, a process, by the way, that will take years in their formation, that decision is determined by someone outside of themselves. Think about the people who make economic decisions and the consequences for them. You know, I recently read an article about the Alberta oil patch layoffs in which changes in the production of worldwide oil production with its layoffs in Canada has resulted in a 30% rise in suicides in that province. Others have made decisions for the future of many. Crazy thing is, most often the people affected are completely unaware that others have decided for them. You know that this is the way of the world. The idea that I make my own decisions for myself, that that I'm the captain of my own ship and the, the master of my own destiny, that I can sing with Frank Sinatra that I did it my way, is simply belied by the facts. Others make decisions for you all the time, and most of the time, you don't even think about it or realize how they have decided for you. And your life, be it for good or for ill, is not just impacted by what others do. In some sense, it is determined by others. Think about it this way. The country you live in determines in a major way what you think about the world, whether you believe in individual rights and freedoms or whether the idea of an expected morality is more important than the expression of personal decisions. You know, as strongly as those who live in North America feel about these issues, it's surprising for us to hear of others who feel just as strongly the other way around. It's because people other than us took responsibility for what we think, took responsibility, if you will, to indoctrinate us. Now, this basic truth, that which is often not obvious to us, was obvious to the Apostle Paul. Adam, in his act of rebellion against his creator, his original sin in the garden, his one act of defiance in this act, took responsibility for the entire human race. He, as the head of the human race, made a decision for all of us. And we, those who are in Adam, are counted as sinners in Adam. But what is the point of all of this? It is to point out that even while we are responsible for our own personal sin, the decision to be in sin was one that was made for us. And if that's so, and it is, then simply to make the choice to no longer be in sin, well, that's not ours to make. For we are in Adam, and the federal head of our race chose sin for us. And that's why the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the human race needs another federal head. 
It needs not reform or new ways of thinking or a better education system or better decision-making skills or more personal motivation seminars. We need more than anything else a new Adam. We need a new head of a new humanity who might make a new choice for us. You know, when we last ended our study in Romans, we ended with Romans 5.14, and there we read, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, we're not going to repeat our study from yesterday, only to take note of that one last phrase. Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. Now, that word type refers to a pattern. You know, throughout the Bible, certain events or institutions serve as a pattern for something that arises later. And so, for instance, the ritual sacrifice in the Old Testament serves as a pattern or a type for the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. Most of us know that. Or Israel crossing the Red Sea serves as a pattern for our own baptism. Earlier events set the stage and form a pattern or a type for what is to happen later. And that, says Paul, is what Adam is. His life and who he is sets the stage for a pattern of who Jesus is. Now, fascinatingly enough, instead of showing us how that's true, how Adam and Christ are the same, which Paul will do later, It is as if he interrupts himself here to quickly point out, lest we get the wrong idea, he tells us how Adam and Jesus are very different, not like each other at all. So in verses 15 to 17, Paul gives us three ways in which Adam and Jesus are very different. They are different in how they affected others. So first, Paul will argue they are different in regard to the impact of their actions. Let's read verses 15 to 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. See, the difference between Adam and Christ is seen most in the impact of their actions. The impact of Adam, death. The impact of Jesus, the free gift of God's grace. But here a key word twice repeated, once for Adam and once for Christ, is the word many. Now, one might argue that in relationship to Adam, it should read all. Paul should have said, at least so we think, in Adam all die. In Jesus, many receive grace. But he doesn't. He says many for both. Now, why is that? Well, it seems to me that Paul does not write all, for he knows that in regards to God's saving purposes, God has found a way in grace through Jesus to redeem many of the sons of Adam. In other words, within God's eternal purposes, he will not allow Adam to have complete authority over all the human race. He marks out a boundary for Adam and says, in spite of the fact that you are the federal head of the human race, I will not allow that to stand. Yes, your actions will be devastating, but not complete, not all. And so even in the Old Testament, God redeems a people by the blood of Jesus who will come in the future. And so the point is that both Adam and Jesus had a huge impact on many, but the impact of their actions is vastly different. Now we come to verse 16. Here Paul wants to say not only are Adam and Jesus different in terms of the kind of impact they had, but the result, and here he means the results before God, are profoundly different. So let's read. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. See, Paul knows that every human being will stand before God and answer for their own sin. Adam's sin brings condemnation. Christ's righteousness brings justification. Now, think about how different Adam and Jesus actually are. Satan came to Adam in the garden to tempt him or to incite him to rebel against his creator, eat of the forbidden tree, and refuse the reign of God. And Adam did what Satan counseled him to do. But Jesus, on the other hand, well, Satan also came to him, not in the garden, but in the desert, tempted him or tried to incite him to rebel against his father. And Jesus resisted him. As a result, condemnation or justification. One man condemned, the other justified, and this result of their lives became the result of their children. Now, the third difference between Adam and Jesus is the difference in the status of their children. In verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Now, please don't pass by this quickly. Please notice how different the word reign, that is to rule over or to be king over, is when referring to either Adam or Jesus. According to Paul, the children of Adam are ruled by death. They even have a great king over them, a powerful monarch who makes decisions regarding their future. That king is death, and when death speaks, all die. On the other hand, the children of Jesus are made into rulers. I, did you see that in the passage? They are not reigned or ruled by something. Instead, they reign or they rule or they exercise dominion in life. Adam was initially called upon to rule over the works of God's hands, and instead he fell and was ruled by death. Jesus did not fall, and his descendants fulfill what Adam's descendants were unable to fulfill. They will rule and reign over all the works of God's hands. You know, and when we come back, we're going to see how, even though the outcome is different, yet how both Adam and Jesus hold absolute sway over their children, and why that's such a precious truth for all of God's people today. Through Dr. Neufeld's teaching, we're beginning to see the great significance of the relationship between Adam and Christ. On the one hand, while Adam is a type of Christ, yet we discover just how different they both are and what this means for those who are unbelievers and those who follow Jesus. What compelling truths to reflect on. And when we come back, Dr. Neufeld encourages us to see why Christ's role as the new head of humanity propels us to live in confidence and faith. If you're familiar with this ministry, maybe you're one of the thousands of people who receive either our Bible Matters or Life Matters publications. Well, coming next month, we're introducing a brand new resource that will combine these two publications into one larger and more relevant piece. Featuring more content, including biblically-based and life application articles, we believe this new resource will speak to a wider audience and draw people closer in their walk with God. So look out for this new publication, which is yet to be named, but you can subscribe today for free at backtothebible.ca or calling us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. (laughs) 
Up until now, we have seen how Adam and Christ are different. The outcome of their lives brought either death or grace, death or life, to those who are their children. But now Paul surprises us by showing how Adam is a type of Jesus. Let's read Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You know, when we studied verse 15, we noticed that Paul twice used the word many. He meant that Adam's actions did not determine the eternal destiny of all because within God's eternal saving purposes, he had already determined that he would save many of Adam's fallen race. But now in verse 18, Paul switches from the use of the word many to twice using the word all. Adam's trespass led to condemnation of all, and Christ's righteousness led to the justification and eternal life of all. You know, every once in a while, universalists, that is, people who believe that everyone will be saved, that there will be no damnation, will use this verse to bolster their cause. But when they do that, they are clearly not following Paul's line of thought. By earlier using the word many, Paul has made the point that there are many of humanity who have Adam as the determiner of their eternal destiny, but not all, and that there are many who have Christ as the determiner of their eternal destiny, but this does not extend to all. And so when in verse 18, Paul uses the term all, he means all who belong to Adam are condemned, and all who belong to Christ are justified and have life. Put quite simply, Adam and Jesus are completely similar in this regard. All of Adam's children will be eternally condemned, and all of Christ's children will be justified and have eternal life. There are absolutely no exceptions to this rule. Now, why is this such a precious verse? See, it's precious because of this. If you belong to Christ, you are as sure to win the battle for holiness and purity and Christ-likeness as the children of Adam will die and be condemned. After all, Christ is your federal head, and all who are in him, without exception, are included in this rule. You know, think of it this way. Everyone dies physically. If you have good genes and you eat well and you exercise and you stay away from smoking and alcohol and drugs, you are much more likely to preserve your life or live longer and have a much better quality of life. But in the end, you will die. No exceptions. That's true of all of Adam's fallen race. In the same way, all those who are in Christ, even though they struggle and sometimes fall into sin and then repent and try again and are sometimes slow to learn the secret of the power of the Spirit and the triumph of the new nature, even though we may retard our growth, all who are a part of Christ's redeemed race will in the end stand before Christ with great joy, without spot or stain or wrinkle, be entirely sanctified, no exceptions, all in Christ live. Thank you, Lord. And that, my dear brother in Christ, is where our confidence comes from. If Christ is your federal head, this outcome is as sure as death is the outcome for all who are Adam's children. And that's why Christ and Adam are the same. The outcome is the same for all of their children. Now, why is Paul telling us this? 
Because in the next chapter, he will warn us not to let sin reign in our body. And in chapter 7, he will tell us that the flesh wages a horrible warfare against the mind. And in verse 8, he will say that flesh cannot submit to God. And so the reality is that if we give ourselves to sin and do not fight to master it, we will eternally die. And if that's true, if you play footloose and free with sin and are not repentant and do not learn the life of the Spirit, you will be eternally condemned. But there is a truth that overarches all of that, and it is this. It is the word all. Jesus, one act of righteousness, that is, his righteous life, leads to the justification of all men. All in Jesus will live and reign and triumph, even as all in Adam will die. Rejoice, child of God, for you are made more than a conqueror, not by your efforts, but by the decisions that your federal head made on your behalf. Boy, I hope you see that. Now, how else are Jesus and Adam the same? Well, let's read verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice again, Paul switches back to the word many. He wants to say to us that both Adam and Jesus have a great company of people. And then just as in Adam, many are made sinners, even so in Jesus, many are made righteous. See, have you ever wondered why people in the world sin? But you know the answer. They're born into sin, and they also choose to sin. Both are equally true. All in Adam are like that. But all in Jesus will be made righteous. Now, having made the point that Adam and Jesus have this point in common, that all their children belong to them and share in their eternal destiny, Paul now brings us to a conclusion that you and I may not have anticipated, but that an ancient Jew would easily have seen coming. Let's see if we can trace his line of thought. It's found in verses 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, anyone reading this passage in question might wonder why it is that after Adam's sin and God's promise in Genesis 3.15 to bring a Redeemer, why is it that it took so long for God to send his Son into the world? I mean, why the event of the flood? And, and why then did God choose Abraham? And, and why then did Israel have to become a nation first and receive laws at Mount Sinai? And why this long period of the kings and the failures and, and so on and so on? And here Paul gives the answer. God would eventually choose a nation and give them his law to increase the trespass. In other words, God did not bring the law into the world to help curb people's bent towards sinning, but to actually increase people's bent towards sinning. I wonder if you've ever noticed that rules, the do-dos and the don'ts, don'ts, bring about a negative reaction in all of us. The minute a law is given, even a demonstrably righteous law, the seething rebellion in the human heart is excited and aroused and catapulted into action. Indeed, if there's anything that law does is that it highlights just how wicked the fallen sons and daughters of Adam really are. We are far more rebellious than we thought we were. We hate God's ways more abundantly than we ever dared admit to ourselves. And we're more committed to dishonoring God far more than we'd ever dreamt. Now watch Paul's next line. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Indeed, if Christ had come immediately after Adam sinned, we would never have been able to comprehend the full extent of the mercy and the love and the kindness and the rich compassion and abounding grace of God. It's not until sins pile up so that they look exceedingly sinful are we able to even catch a glimmer of what Christ did on our behalf. And Jesus once said, he who is forgiven little loves little, but he who is forgiven much loves much. And if we, those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, who are unable to do even one thing to save ourselves since we are the children of Adam, now that we have become the children of Jesus Christ, how then will we not find hope and confidence in Christ? You know, there was an American painter. His name was John Sargent. He once painted a panel of roses that was highly praised by the critics. It was a small picture, but it approached perfection. Although offered a high price for it on many occasions, Sargent refused to sell it. He considered it his best work and was very proud of it. Whenever he was deeply discouraged and doubtful of his abilities as an artist, he would look at that painting and remind himself, I painted that, and then his confidence would return. See, the same is true for us. Whenever we think, I'll never become the godly man or woman I want to be, simply look at Christ and say, He painted that, and your confidence will come back. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glory of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is more than enough. And forgive us, O Lord God, when we have not trusted in what He has done. Forgive us, O Heavenly Father, when we thought it was all up to us. O Heavenly Father, how could we have dishonored Christ like that? Give us faith, Lord, so we might see the work of Christ for what it truly is and fill us with joy as we look at Christ. Every believer in Christ struggles with sin, but when we feel defeated and lost and unworthy because of it, how do we deal with this? What a powerful and practical study we've covered today, looking at how Christ, who is the new head, is our only solution. We must remember both in our good and bad days to continue to look to Him, for He alone empowers and strengthens us for godly living. May we always be thankful that we're no longer children of Adam, and let us be encouraged by these truths found in Romans chapter 5. This wraps up week one of our series, The Power of the Gospel, but be sure to tune in again next week for more great teaching on Romans chapter 5 to 8 with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's been said that across all cultures, races, and eras, mankind is searching for one thing, purpose or meaning. Without a sense of why we're here, we cannot be sure of anything. As people who follow Jesus, we have the answer, and it's found in God's Word. And in 2016, we're absolutely committed to declaring the truth about who we are and who God is to even more people. It's an exciting time ahead of us, but we can't do it alone. Would you stand with us for biblical truth so that many others can discover what real life and real faith in Christ is all about? If you've never partnered with us before, then now is the perfect time to begin. There are many ways to get involved, such as our monthly partnership program, Partner to Tell. It's a great and convenient way to support this ministry on a recurring basis. In fact, we're excited to say that last year, we well exceeded our goal of 100 new partners, thanks to the dedication of people like you. 
and we're looking to gain an additional 120 partners this year, which would put us over the 500 mark. Or if you'd prefer, we'd be so grateful for a one-time gift of any amount. The bottom line is, by working together, we can continue to grow and have an even greater influence in people's lives through the solid and uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.